Tonight I'd like to talk about something that's called the Vipassana jhanas. These are different experiences of concentration and insight that parallel the jhanas or absorptions of samadhi practice. For example, metta or focusing on a light or a colored disc. There are traditional exercises of concentration which lead to samadhi or concentration jhana. These are the jhanas that are based on the development of mindfulness. There's a range of experience that comes. And in having this framework of understanding, perhaps it will help in some way for you to put your experience in a somewhat larger context. Sometimes as you go through the ups and downs of daily practice, it can be easy to lose sight of really what it is that's developing and unfolding. The first Vipassana jhana is called the happiness of seclusion. And what this means is that the mind is to some degree secluded from the power of the hindrances. Now you all know by now that at times the mind is under attack. And often there are multiple hindrance attacks or it just feels like it's an onslaught of desire or aversion or sleepiness, restlessness, doubt, fear. But there are times in the practice and it comes about when two of the jhanic factors become strong, that the mind enters a state where the hindrances are kept at bay. It's almost as if there's a fence uh, constructed around the mind. The hindrances are on the outside of the fence. The, The two factors, the two jhanic factors of mind which make this possible, the technical terms are initial application and sustained application. When these are strong, the mind begins to rest or settle more and more easily on the particular object. There's an image which has come to my mind as I watch the changes in my own practice. For a long time it felt like I was balancing on the top of this arch. There's an arch and I'm balancing on top and my mind would be pulled off. I'd be pulled down, so to speak. First on one side, then the other side. And it would be a struggle to get back up to the top. I'd have to climb back up. But in this first Vipassana jhana, when initial and sustained application is strong, it's as if the arch inverts. And it goes from being an arch to being a trough. And then we're resting right at the bottom of the trough And still from time to time, we get pulled out. But as we're pulled out, the mind naturally falls back down to that place of balance. It's as if the mind is drawn back to the connection with what's going on. So that's a big shift that begins to happen. What are these factors? What are these two jhanic factors? They've been spoken of you know, in different contexts of the retreat. 
You can call it initial or sustained application of mind. You can call it aiming and rubbing, or connecting and sustaining. It's those two forces or qualities in the mind which bring us to the object and then hold the attention steady. So these are two very critical factors in the development of practice. The examples which sometimes are used, you know, we hear a bell, there's the initial hearing, just when it's struck, and then the mind stays with the reverberation. Just when it's struck, that's the initial application. And the mind staying with it is the sustained application, or connecting and sustaining. Another example is like a bee going to a flower. It's drawn to the flower and then it circles around the flower. These are just images for how the mind is working with these two factors. They can become strong with the primary object of the breath or sitting and touching, but also they can become strong with changing objects, where the mind connects and sustains moment to moment. Now, when the mind is secluded from the hindrances for a period of time, and these two jhanic factors start to become strong, there's something important which begins to happen. And that is that in this state of the first vipassana jhana, we begin to see and experience very clearly the three universal characteristics. We can hear about these and know them. You know, we know about impermanence and suffering and selflessness. And we can have ideas about them. But in this state of practice, we are actually seeing it for ourselves. It's like they are being revealed. They're showing themselves very directly in our experience. We experience impermanence in many different ways from some very obvious ways to very subtle moments. As a simple example of impermanence that we can all connect with when we pay attention, noticing the changes of posture during the day. Now, it's not something that we have particularly emphasized as a practice in itself but it is actually one of the teachings of the Buddha, just to pay attention to the postures, to sit and know you're sitting, stand and know you're standing, walk and know you're walking, lie down, know you're lying down, and to notice how through the day our posture keeps changing. we begin to get a very different sense of the body from something as simple as this. Now it's part, in the four foundations of mindfulness, it's part of mindfulness of the body. One of the things that surprises me often about the practice, or about the teachings of the Buddha, is how the very simplest things 
can lead to the deepest states of awakening. Paying attention to the postures, to the change of postures during the day, that's pretty simple. And yet it has this power to reveal so much to us about impermanence. When we understand impermanence, we understand letting go. When we understand letting go, we understand the end of suffering. We notice impermanence in the breath. Again, something very simple. How many breaths have you observed since you've been here? Countless, countless breaths. You can notice impermanence or change in so many ways. You can notice it, the difference between the breaths. Some are long or short or smooth or rough or shallow or deep. And to really notice, not to have this intellectual understanding of it, but to be so close. And this is where the workings of these jhanic factors come in. When we're really there with it, that initial application, the connection and then sustaining the attention, we are right in it. And we see that very, very directly, that each breath is actually quite different from the one before. Not only that, but within each breath, just within an in-breath or within a rising movement. Now, how many different changing sensations have you experienced? And when you're on that level of perception, the very notion of breath disappears. All there is is a process of change. So this is what starts showing itself in this first Vipassana jhana, when we're, the mind is secluded from the hindrances, we're not kind of in turmoil. And we're really seeing delicately and intimately and directly the momentariness of experience. We have insight into impermanence when we observe the sensations in the body. You now you've had this experience, I'm sure you're sitting and just a sensation arises and you notice it and then it either changes or it seems to jump or shift or move or disappear and another sensation arises. One after the other, these sensations appear and disappear. The more carefully we look, the more carefully we're connected, the more obvious this becomes. But there is nothing permanent at all in the sensations we feel in the body. We see impermanence with change of posture. We see it in the breath. We see it in sensations. We see impermanence in our awareness of the momentariness of thoughts. I'm sure there's nobody left in this room who does not yet know that thoughts are impermanent. How many have come and gone and come and gone and come and gone? But what's so interesting, when we're lost in them, when we're lost in our thoughts, we get so involved in the story, we get so involved in the content, in the drama. And then in the next moment, this intense thought world, thought form that we've created, 
you know, and are living in, in the very next moment, it's gone. And from that perspective of impermanence, if we can really see that and have the wisdom in that moment, it's really with wonder you know, that we look back, what was I taking so seriously? What was I so lost in? It was just a momentary arising in the mind. So we need to see this again and again and again. Our mind has been habituated for so long, probably lifetimes, if the reports are true. (laughs) We've been so habituated to create these mind-constructed worlds and to be lost in them. So we need to practice seeing the impermanence of thought forms, of thought constructions. But as we do that, as this insight, this, this is all part of the first Vipassana jhana, this insight into impermanence becomes alive for us, that we are really seeing this in our minds, it has a tremendous deconditioning influence. We begin to learn not to take our thoughts so seriously, not to give them so much power, to stop creating these prisons of the mind you know, where we become, become trapped. And where does that freedom come from? It comes from seeing the impermanence, seeing the momentariness. Suzuki Roshi, in Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, he expressed it with his characteristic simplicity. He said, don't be bothered by your thoughts. Let them come and let them go. It's so simple. But we need to see it. And that's where these two jhanic factors are so important. If we're connecting and sustaining, if we're right there with each arising experience, we do see the impermanence. And then we don't get caught. We see the impermanence with moods and mind states and emotions. When we get caught by them, when we become identified with them, then these mind states or moods color, they're they're a filter on our experiences, as if we're viewing the world through this filter of a certain mood, of happiness or sadness or sorrow or joy or boredom or interest, whatever it may be. And it takes a lot of attentiveness. We really have to be alert in order to notice the mind states themselves, the moods themselves, because they're very amorphous. They're hard to see. It's not like a substantial object. It's not even as well-defined as a thought. So we need to be very quiet in our minds and very alert to noticing This is the mood that's present. This is the coloration in the mind at this time. So we don't become identified with them. So this is the first Vipassana jhana. We're secluded from the hindrances. We're seeing the impermanence, the momentariness of phenomena. 
we see very directly that everything which arises also passes away. On one level, we know this. I mean, this is not a surprise to say that. But on another level, we don't know it. Because if we really knew it, we wouldn't hold on to anything. So the the degree to which we're attached is the degree to which we don't really know it. It's this state of practice where we're just noticing over and over again everything which arises is also passing away. Where when we're allowing for that flow to happen, that is the real, genuine, authentic experience of impermanence. When this happens, our mind becomes a lot brighter, a lot lighter, a lot more spacious. Okay, so one way of strengthening this particular insight and strengthening this first Vipassana jhana is to practice not only noticing what it is that's arising in each moment, whether breath or sensation or sound or mood, whatever it is, not only to notice the arising, but to make a conscious intention to notice what happens to that particular experience. So you're really paying attention. A sensation arises, what happens to it? A sound arises, what happens to it? Thought arises, what happens to it? You're really aiming and sustaining your attention to see that moment of change. That kind of care in the practice brightens the attention. It brightens the mindfulness. Okay, so we see impermanence. We also see very directly in this level of first Vipassana jhana, we have a direct experience of dukkha, of suffering. Now, there are stages in the practice, and again, I'm sure you've experienced this at times, when you're just experiencing one painful feeling after another. You know, it's tightness or hardness or tension or aching or itching or whatever they may be. <laughs> there was once an article, I don't know, it was in some women's magazine, Good Housekeeping. <laughs> there was this article which somebody sent to me. It listed some number, 80 or 90 or 100 different kinds of pain. <laughs> I thought this is a great uh, meditator's uh, guidebook. You know, stabbing, twisting, burning, searing. <laughs> <laughs> it just went on and on like that. Well, there are times in practice when that's what we're experiencing, moment after moment. This is the experience of dukkha. You know? There's an important distinction to make here, though, because we can experience dukkha in two ways. We can experience dukkha through the filter of concepts, or we can be with it directly in our experience. Just as an example of this, 
When the suffering is arising with concepts, we may be sitting and our mind will be saying, oh, my back hurts, or my knee hurts. That's a concept. That's a thought construct which we're overlaying on top of the experience. The other way is just to feel the sensation, to feel the suffering, to feel the pain of it. If you notice the difference between these two, you may also notice that when the mind is feeling the suffering with concepts, the mind often gets irritable or annoyed. It's like there's an extra kind of aversion or unpleasantness that's coming out of the concept, not coming from the experience itself. So just look, make, make this experiment in your practice. Watch when your mind is feeling suffering directly, simply, right on target. You're just there with the experience. And when you're feeling it with an overlay of concept and notice the difference in your mind. There's one pattern, so it's a, it's a pattern of attitude that I find uh, interesting to observe. And that is that sense that on the one hand we really want to open to suffering. You know, it's the first noble truth of the Buddha's teaching. It clearly is an important aspect of everyone's life. And so we have this interest to open to it. Let me feel the suffering. But there's this other side of the mind, which at the very same time wants it to be enjoyable. <laughs> you know? It's sort of like wanting to witness one's own funeral or something. One thing about the insight into suffering is that it's suffering. But often we overlook, or we don't really appreciate the value of what we're going through, because we haven't quite gotten that. You know, and so we want to, abstractly, we want to be, you know, deepening our insight into dukkha without feeling the suffering of it. Well, it doesn't work like that. The experience of dukkha is to feel the dukkha, is to open to it. What we want to be careful with, though, is to see the difference between opening to it and feeling it, feeling the suffering. It is a state of suffering. The difference between being mindful of that and identifying with it. Those are two very different states. So as you're going through the practice, and you go through many cycles of this, where there is suffering of some kind or another, whether it's painful feelings that are coming one after the other in the body, or painful emotions, or just the suffering of 
seeing clearly the unreliability of phenomena, that there's nothing, there's no security anyplace because everything is continually changing. So if you're feeling the suffering of that, see if you can put it into the context of it being insight into suffering. That is what's happening at that time. It's not a problem. It's not that something is going wrong. We're actually seeing something that's essential to say. It's just as with impermanence, it's insight into suffering that also deconditions attachment. It deconditions grasping. Do you hold on to a hot burning coal? Probably not. You'd probably let go. Why do we hold on to the suffering that arises? Sometimes we hold on because we're not aware. We're not aware that we're holding on. We're not aware of the suffering. Okay, the third thing we see in this first Vipassana jhana is the insight into anatta, into selflessness. We experience the impermanence, we experience the dukkha. There are some very specific ways, and there are many, that we get this insight into selflessness, that we experience it. The first is the understanding that experience or objects or appearances cannot be controlled. That they are not amenable to our will. Let my body be like this. Let my hair grow back. Let my knees not hurt. Let me not grow old. And we can have these wishes. If this body really belonged to me, if I were the owner in some meaningful way, it would follow orders. But it doesn't. It's following its own laws. It is not subject to our will. That's one experience. When we see this, not again, it's, we can know it intellectually, but we really have to observe that this is how it is. So that is an insight into the selflessness, the ungovernableness of the body, of the mind. This sitting, let me not have thoughts. Let me only have pleasant mind states. Let there only be good memories. It doesn't work. (laughs) And so, you've all had this experience after all these months of practice. But sometimes we miss the import of it. I mean, you've all seen this. You've all seen that things are not subject to our will. The import of it is that things are selfless ungovernable. 
we begin to see that everything arises out of conditions. When the conditions are there, something happens. When the conditions are not there, that thing doesn't arise. It has nothing to do with self, with I, with me, with mine. Okay, so that's one way we experience a nata directly, authentically. Another experience of a nata, of selflessness, is through the perception of the constant change, of the momentariness. Nothing lasts long enough to call self. Now, there are times in the practice when things are moving so quickly. Just this, this constant, quick flow, things arising and passing, it becomes clear that none of them could be self, because none of them last long enough. Again, you can notice this, and it becomes clear in this state or phase, which we call the first Vipassana jhana, when we're really seeing each moment's arising, it's there and it's gone. It's there and it's gone. Now, sometimes, sometimes it's almost like a mirage. There's the sense of something be there, and by the time we get there, even in the, in the moment it takes to bring our attention fully to the object, it's no longer there. So we have this very direct, immediate sense of the insubstantiality of it all. It's like, from a distance, you know, a mirage seems real. And yet as you come up close and into it, the whole thing is not there. It's exactly the same way. This, this mind-body which seems so solid to us, we understand the insubstantiality by this constant dissolution. Another way we experience anatta, selflessness, you know, sometimes when you're sitting or walking, you have the sense that it's all just happening by itself. You're not doing anything. Everything is just coming and going on its own. It's empty phenomena rolling on. It's a sense of no one home. There's no one behind it to whom it's happening. You can play with this a little bit in your practice or experiment. Sometimes sit, even if it's just for a couple of minutes at a time, sit and practice non-doing. Now, don't do anything, just sit. And notice what happens. And in that minute or two or three or five of non-doing, you see that everything keeps on going. It doesn't need us. And in fact, there's no us to do anything anyway. <laughs> that everything we're doing is just more of the empty process going on. So we begin to get a sense of this, that we can sit back in a, in a certain way, we can sit back in our practice and relax, really relax, and just let everything come and go. Sometimes people in practice have the experience of anatta where it feels like things are happening to someone else. You know, there's a very, it's a very funny kind of experience where 
you're walking or you're sitting and watching the breath, and there's just this feeling that this is happening to someone else. <laughs> it's not happening to me. Those kinds of perspectives are anatta experiences. The other side of experiencing anatta and a way of getting to it is to pay attention in the course of the day to when you know, you're going along and everything is just flowing on, empty phenomena, rolling on, and then watch to see those moments when there's a something happens and you identify with something. That, cre- that moment of creation of self, of I, of ego, where you take birth in something. It really is the I taking birth in a thought form, in an emotion, in a reaction, in a mood. And just see, see the difference. See what realm you take birth in. You know, you take birth in some of the heaven realms, you can take birth in some of the hell realms. But then in the moment of seeing, again, the mind being released from that. And again, we're in the experience of anatta, of selflessness, of emptiness. Okay, so this is what's char- characteristic of the first Vipassana jhana. It's seclusion from the hindrances for a period of time and a very immediate direct seeing of the three characteristics. And when we see this, in this immediate way, there's a very deep, a deeply felt sense of seeing something true. Because we're not seeing it through the filter of concepts. We're not thinking about things being impermanent or suffering or selfless. It's because of our immediate connection to these experiences that we really have the understanding of the timelessness and the universality of the Dharma. We understand that these experiences are not time-bound. You know, it's not that impermanence happens this week, but last week things were permanent. You know, or next week things will, you know, there'll be a self next week, even though there's not this week. You know, we see, and this is what, this is what really makes the practice so profound that in some way we touch, really touch, we more than touch, we, we enter into the timelessness of what is true. So when this happens, and it can happen for a few moments at a time, or it can happen for extended periods of time, you know, but when we get glimpses of that, the mind gets very um, energized. Really, there's a kind of dharma joy, a rapture, that begins to happen. But here, there can be a little bit of a danger. 
because out of this joy and rapture and interest, very commonly we start reflecting about all this. You know, Dharma reflections, Dharma thoughts, and they're very seductive because they're about the practice itself. You know, we can, to some extent, by now you've probably gotten at least at times a handle on the planning mind and remembering mind and all of that, and can sometimes note them and you know, get on. But with Dharma-type thoughts, they really seduce us. Well, this, this is really what's happening. This, this is about my experience. You have to be very uh, mindful, because if you get lost in those Dharma reflections, they prevent the other jhanic factors from becoming strong. So be watchful. You know, and if there's Dharma reflection, just, just note. Note it as reflecting or Dharma tape. Let it come and go and come right back to the momentariness of experience. Okay, as we do this, so then the mindfulness gets stronger again, the concentration gets stronger, and out of that, more rapture comes, more joy comes, and we enter the second vipassana jhana. This is a phase in practice where the meditation actually becomes fun. It doesn't stay fun, but it's fun at this time. And it's, it's likened to the excitement of an adolescent, you know, who's just, just excited about something or exuberant. Because uh, things are going, you know, where the mind is pretty much on course, it's not wandering a lot, we're just in this flow of phenomena, it's light, it's spacious, there are these feelings of rapture, you know, there's a kind of ease in the body. So we get excited. This is a time in the second Vipassana jhana when these good feelings come and, and we're really happy in our practice. Here it's not so much, uh, the danger is not so much about the reflecting mind, the danger is that we get attached to feeling good. We get attached to these nice states. And it can be so powerful, it can be, can be a very powerful, rapturous feeling. It can be so strong that people really think, well, this is it. You know, I've, I've done it. Done is what had to be done. <laughs> but done, not done is what had to be done. <laughs> it's called pseudo-nibbana. <laughs> It feels so good that oh, this must be it. The Buddha called this, when there's attachment to this really good feeling in practice, he called this stopping within. You know, where we're not attached to something on the outside, but we're attached to the state inside. And at this time, it's very important to note the mind states themselves. To note the rapture, to note the happiness, to note the enthusiasm, to note the interest, 
so that we don't become identified with them, so we don't become attached. We don't stop at this place. Because if we don't note that and notice it, what happens is we constellate the sense of self in that experience, in that, in that quite nice experience, and things stagnate, things get stuck there. Sometimes we may remember to note them. Oh, happy, happy, happy. We're noting them, but we're really still attached. <laughs> you know, there's a sense, happy, 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 but I really like this. <laughs> so the mind's very tricky. You really have to be very subtle in your awareness and discrimination. If there's that kind of enjoyment or delighting in these states, we need to see that. We need to note that, oh, enjoying, delighting. You know, in the description of the yogi path, what it says about this time is that it's important to be very tactful with yogis because there's all this, there's all this enthusiasm and joy and energy. So it's to encourage, encourage it, but also to urge onward so as not to stop at this place. Okay, if we keep noting you know, the different mind states that come in the second Vipassana jhana, where there's rapture, there's joy, there's happiness. Um, we come to an extremely important insight. I mean, in some way, it's, it's a uh, juncture in the whole spiritual path. And the insight, the particular insight at this time, it's called discerning what is the path and what is not the path. You know, so it's a very important point. Because until we reach this point of insight, there can be that sense that we're practicing for some good state. You know, we're practicing for this feeling of ease, for this feeling of spaciousness, for this feeling of joy. But it's only when we go through that and keep noting, suddenly it dawns on us, we really see, oh, the path is not about having this good feeling. It's not about good feeling. The path is about freedom in each moment, which comes from mindfulness, regardless of what is arising. That our awareness, our mindfulness, is not dependent on any particular experience. And so, what we're aiming for is not to create any particular experience. Do you see the importance of this? Because until we see that clearly, the mind inclines towards practicing four good experiences. That's a dead end, even though we can spend a long time on that route. So we get to this juncture through noting, through noticing. The good states come, and we note, and we note, and note, and we see them come and go, and then it really becomes clear in our mind what is the path and what is not the path. What is the path is the continuous mindfulness 
of whatever arises. It doesn't matter what it is that's arising. Okay, when we see this through our own wisdom, when there's really this discernment in our experience, it brings a tremendous amount of confidence. Because then we see that the path and our practice does not depend on it being any particular way. So this is a great opening. We see that whatever is happening in the sitting, it's happy, it's joyous, it's spacious, it's easy, it's painful, it's frightening, whatever it is, when we understand what is the path and what is not the path, there's no problem. We really are on a very straight and direct route at that time. From this place, then the rapture, the excitement, that begins to fade. Mindfulness then becomes more lucid. It's not so mixed up with the rapturous, joyous feelings. The mindfulness becomes very clear, very sharp, very lucid. There's not much agitation at that time. Okay, through the fading of the rapture, we then experience the phase which is called the third Vipassana jhana. And it's in this part of the practice that the last two jhanic factors become predominant. That is, sukha, which can be translated as happiness, as comfort, feeling of well-being, which is different than the rapture, which is a kind of excited energy. The rapture fades away and there's comfort and one-pointedness. This is more subtle. There's a kind of uh, peaceful or silent joy in the practice. It's more calmed down. And there still may be some kind of attachment here, but it's much less. Because we have seen what is the path and what is not the path, we really can go straight. In this place of very lucid mindfulness that's not caught up in the, in the rapture and the excitement, from this place and in this Vipassana jhana, we begin to see the dissolution of phenomena. We begin to see or the perspective of dissolution, that everything which is arising is just dissolving, dissolving, dissolving. Everything is disappearing. Things externally, internally, the body, the mind, everything is simply falling away. The image that strikes me in this part of the practice, it feels to me like, you know, have you ever sat by the side of a waterfall and just, just watched the lip, you know, the water continually falling over the lip of the waterfall? And it's just, it's like that, not resting for a moment. 
in this third Vipassana jhana, that's what begins to happen. Experience is just like continuously falling over the lip of the moment. Nothing to hold on to. At this time, the body form may begin to disappear. And all of a sudden, you're sitting, and there's no head, or there's no legs, or there's no arms. Uh, and at first, people get a little worried. You know, how, <laughs> how will I eat? <laughs> the form is there when you need it. You don't have to worry. But there is that experience, because the mind is seeing the dissolution so quickly. That, that's why we have the experience of the form disappearing. So this time, the fourth jhanic factor of comfort falls away. And we don't really feel comfort again until the mind reaches, it goes through a lot of other experiences until it reaches a very high state of equanimity. So in this period of practice, the rapture is gone, the comfort is gone, you know, that feeling of well-being. What's left are the jhanic factors of one-pointedness, and the comfort has changed to equanimity, which is a very different feeling. It's not, it's not that feeling of happiness or well-being, but it's the quality in the mind that is completely, powerfully even, balanced. There are a lot of, a lot of uh, particular experiences which happen along the way here. Again, painful feelings can come back in the body. Different aspects of dukkha start to come. We don't, we may not feel good. So again, the reason I'm laying all this out, not that you, not that you try to figure out exactly where you are in your practice, which is a hopeless exercise. It's, that's not the purpose. It's really just to give you a context for understanding some of the kinds of experiences you may be going through. So for example, if you're in a state where it feels like you can't note anything and things are falling away and you can't, the mindfulness can't seem to catch on to anything. You know, or there's some kind of emotional um, distress. It could be a lot of different things. It could be old stuff coming up, but it could also be because that's the place in practice where this happens. In this, in this Vipassana jhana, as the equanimity gets stronger, you know, and this is really the test as you go through these difficult times, it's the, how shall we say, the training ground for equanimity. Now, can we remain in balance with whatever it is that arises, the mind not reacting? When the equanimity is well-developed, this is the fourth Vipassana jhana. And again, there's an interesting phenomenon that happens here. The mental pleasure fades away. 
and it's replaced by neutral feeling, neither painful nor pleasant. And what's really quite fascinating about neutral feeling, when we're we're just abiding in that place of equanimity, we see that neutral feeling is actually a greater joy than pleasantness. It's more subtle. It's a more refined kind of feeling. Mindfulness at this time is in a very pure state. And all the factors of enlightenment uh, are ripening. When there's the one-pointedness and equanimity and we're just there in the flow of phenomena, not reacting, not judging, just things coming and going with this quality of evenness. This is really the maturing. This is the maturing place of practice. When equanimity is strong, the mind is very imperturbable. And there's a tremendous sense of strength in that. Tremendous sense of confidence, of faith. That we can be with anything. At this point, often any sense of the body will disappear. The breath can disappear, the sitting touching can disappear, the whole body can disappear. Sometimes there's just awareness, there's just a flow of consciousness. And even that can get increasingly subtle. And it's out of this place of equanimity, really a profound balance of mind, that the mind opens to the unconditioned. You know, which has been called many different things, open to Nibbana, or the unformed distilling of formations, putting down the burden. We get a glimpse of that which is beyond impermanence and dukkha. We really come to a place of rest. I'd like to close with uh, a few lines from T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets. It really reminded me of this place of freedom. A condition of complete simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. This is really our practice. A condition of simplicity costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. So let's sit in complete simplicity.
This talk was given by Joseph Goldstein at Insight Meditation Society on November 20, 1993. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.